You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening. Welcome to our Jewish Matters podcast and tonight our holiday series. And tonight we're going to be talking about harnessing Yom Kippur for personal growth and change. And the statistics are that 60% of people in the United States make New Year's resolutions. A University of Scranton study showed that after one week, 25% uh, are left, only one quarter are left with those resolutions, and only 8% follow through long term. So the question is, why do they fail? So the studies show that 35% of the people failed because they admitted they had unrealistic goals. Another 33% said they didn't keep track of their progress. And 23% said they forgot about it. So question is, how do we enter going towards Yom Kippur, come up with a strategy of how to have constructive change and how we're going to follow up on it. These are our challenges. And why Yom Kippur? Because we're told that this time of year is particularly propitious for personal change. It's in the air, so to speak. It's a time of God's mercy. And we believe that uh, the Almighty, this time of year, is even more forgiving that if we step up to the plate and recognize our mistakes, that uh, we can work with ourselves and God will work with us to help us along in this path of personal change. And we spoke about uh, how Rosh Hashanah was the macro, looking at new goals. Yom Kippur is the micro. And the Torah calls us during this time of year to do what we call tshuva. Now, what is tshuva? Tshuva literally, literally means to return. What are we returning to? We're returning to ourselves, really. We're returning to our true selves, which is our divine soul, rather than our lower voice, which is looking just for instant gratification, for external pleasures and external recognition. And uh, we believe that we also return to the Almighty by returning to a closeness to God, we will realign ourselves with our true selves, with our true soul. So that's our goal. So the process of return is not just uh, a New Year's resolution saying, okay, I'm looking forward, I'm just going to barrel ahead towards good things. And that is good, uh, but it's not the full picture. Because the Torah tells us that in order to really do this, we need to look at the past and we need to take stock and we, we need to see how we might have been off. And understanding how we've been off is crucial. Why? For a number of different reasons. So if a ship uh, doesn't know its location, it cannot course correct. That's the first point. Secondly, we have to figure out how to avoid the same pitfalls. If the rudder is damaged and broken, then you're going to veer off course again in any case. So the exercise might be futile. And it also, looking at the past and seeing our mistakes, teaches us to take responsibility. We see the consequences of our actions, and hopefully that'll give us a renewed sense of urgency 
to make sure that our future is one which is better, which is improved, which is on track, and where we don't make the same mistakes against ourselves, uh, towards the Almighty, and towards other people. So the Torah gives us a program of tshuva, and there are many different versions of this, but the one I'd like to present is distilled from many of the different commentaries. There's Rabbeinu Yonah of Gurundi, uh, who was a early medieval sage. He wrote a book called The Gates of Repentance. He's got 18 steps. Uh, there's Rabbeinu Bachye in his Duties of the Heart, where he talks about repentance. There's Maimonides. But I'd like to present this distillation into the six R's. Uh, and the six R's to help remember, which is not one of the R's. So the first one is to refrain from the action to put the brakes on and try and hold ourselves back. Now, it might only be a temporary stopgap. And that's why we have to work on recognizing where we went wrong. Digging deeper, seeing with clarity what the mistake was, seeing its consequences, and then trying to find within us what brought us to do that, right? Why am I saying negative things about other people? Do I feel I have to put others down to feel better about myself? Does it make me look intelligent? Uh, what is the motivation behind it? And finding that motivation will help us to uproot the behavior, to change the motivation, and to uproot the motivation and the behavior. So that's recognize. The third step is what we'll call repentance, which is, shockingly, uh, uh, confession. And people usually associate confession with Catholicism, not with Judaism. And we are not confessing to the rabbi, but we're confessing to God. And so in the Torah, it says that we have to confess verbally. We have to verbally formulate and express the mistakes we've made. And who do we do that for? We do it in front of the Almighty. We do it for ourselves, but we do it before God. And it might sound, feel a little strange to go into a room, close the door, and start talking to God. But, um, but we now know that educationally, the more senses we engage in our experiences, the more something will impact us. So this is in line with that. So we have refraining from the action. We have recognizing what is wrong and where it came from. We have repenting, verbally formulating our wrong. And the fourth is resolve. And this we're going to expand on at length. But the resolve is, of course, that I never do this action again in the future because it's wrong. Now, I had someone ask me a couple of days ago, so Rabbi, I want to change. But I know realistically that if I try and just eliminate this completely, right, I'm never going to get angry again. I'm never going to lose my patience. I'm going to totally stick to my diet or getting up at 6.30 every morning and exercising, whatever it is. Uh, that if we take such a radical change, it probably will not stick. So... When she asked me and she said, well, you know, I want to make changes, but they're only going to be incremental. 
So what am I doing? What am I saying to God? I regret and I shouldn't have done this and I'm not going to do it again. That's what it says in the prayer book. So this is what we suggest. To, and to be real, say to God, you know, I wish that I would never do this again. Realistically, I know if I try and do that, I'll probably fail and then wind up back where I was. So I'm going to take this as my first step towards trying not to do it again. So realistic resolutions. And as I said, we'll elaborate on that. Now, the fifth step is the wild card, we call it. What does that mean? Remorse. So why is remorse a wild card? Rabbi Soloveitchik, in his book On Repentance, which is an amazing work, and I recommend it to read it if you want to delve deeper into this. So he says that there are two types of tshuva. There's the tshuva he calls of ice and the tshuva of fire. The tshuva of fire is a tshuva of uh, emotion. It's when we are disgusted with ourselves, when we're sick of our negative uh, self-destructive behaviors or our bad habits, our procrastinating, our wasting time, um, uh, whatever it is, and we feel just disgusted and like we have to do something. And that is very powerful. And sometimes in that case, the regret will come at the first step of the process. It'll be the first thing that we feel. Other times, it's completely the opposite. Uh, we know we should eat healthier. We know rationally it's true. Uh, but the thought of you know green salad every night and uh, no more munching on junk food, uh, I, I can't regret it. It's, it tastes good. I enjoy it. So sometimes, it, tshuva from ice, cold tshuva, is a rational realization that we have to do something different. Uh, I might not feel it in my kishkas, so to speak, in my inside, but I know my, my, my head is leading me to do it, and so I'm going to start the steps hoping that it'll take me along the way, and then, perhaps afterwards, when I finally start to make changes, I'll feel the regret of, um, of what I've done. A couple of years ago, I stopped eating sugar. And uh, the first two, three weeks were really hard. But then after you break through, uh, you know we no longer even have the desire. And then you kind of feel like, oh, how could I even, you know, have been eating candy bars? So the regret comes with the detachment from the thing that has been dragging us in sometimes. So there's chuva of ice and chuva of fire. Two different approaches. So that's number five is remorse. And finally, if the thing that we've done wrong was wronging another person, hurting their feelings and saying something that might have got them upset. Uh, we mentioned before speaking Lashon Hara, speaking bad of them in front of other people, um, taking something that isn't ours, borrowing it, and you know you find a book on your shelf with someone else's name in it. Um, so, uh, by the way, all of you with the books in my name on it, I forgive you. If you can get it back to me, great. If not, that's okay too. Um, so restitution to another person, that is number six. And if that step is not done, 
then the tshuva is not completed. So six steps, refraining from the action, recognizing what I did wrong, repenting, verbally formulating uh, the wrong, resolve for the future, remorse over the action, and restitution to the person. So those are the six R's. Now let's, uh, let's go a little deeper here because as we mentioned before, we've all tried to change. We've all been at that place. In fact, our list for this year is probably not that much different from last year's. So it can be very discouraging and we can kind of feel like, well, why even try? Why even start? So this is uh, what I heard from Rabbi Avraham Tversky, who is a rabbi and psychiatrist and specializes in substance abuse and getting people to change. And he says that the issues that we struggle with, some of them are going to be lifelong issues. It's not like, okay, high holidays, figure out what's wrong, change it all. There might be some habits we can break and mentioned I broke the sugar habit. Um, there might be some we can break, but uh, there are others which are only going to be very gradual and might happen over years and might need to be revisited. So hopefully it's not just a circle that we come back to the same issues every year. Hopefully it's a spiral where each year we've made some progress, we've made some growth, we've overcome uh, incrementally the things that we are struggling with. So we talked about 35% of the people set unrealistic goals. So one of my teachers, he said basically that on Yom Kippur or the days leading up to it, choose one thing I want to change. One thing. Now, if you want to expand that, we've talked about the areas of things uh, in my own life, things in my relationship to God, things in my relationship to others. So take one in each of those categories and make it, as we said before, very tangible goal. Not saying I'll never get angry again, but next time I'm upset, I won't scream. Or next time I'll upset, I will try and drop, uh, drop it after a minute. Or if I'm too angry, I'll just walk out and... Uh, walk out of the house and uh, make sure I calm down. So the goal is to find the strategy and to uh, take achievable goals uh, that are realizable and ideally even keep a checklist, a chart, how each day we have successfully uh, managed to uh, uh, overcome one of those goals. So that is the path towards starting to do something that is going to be more realistic. Sorry about that. Now, in addition to tangible goals, we said that the goal is to track it. So time tracker goals, which means that as I have that checklist and as I check off each day, when I get to a certain goal, give myself a reward. Uh, there's a tradition in Torah study that when you finish a book or a volume that you make a seum. You make a celebration for having finished 
and you have a meal, you have good food, you get together with other people. And talking about um, setting new goals and uh, trying to achieve them. So about six months ago, I started studying the Dafyomi, page of Talmud every day, and it takes about an hour a day. It's a seven and a half year project. And uh, the first thing in the morning after prayer is I try and do the daf. And thank God, after eight, seven months, I'm still plugging away at it. But, and the first few volumes are quite big. So Shabbat was 156 pages. But I got together a group of other people who are doing it, not necessarily together with them. But the fact that we all know that we're doing it and we get together to celebrate together also helps. So if you can find a growth partner, that is an incredibly powerful tool. What I did is one of those people now is my study partner. So that is uh, a really powerful tool to find a growth partner. Now, many people use a personal coach or a therapist as their growth partner, right? Uh, and certainly their therapists have tools that um, we can use and sometimes might be successful where we're not successful on our own. Talmud says that a person cannot dig themselves, get themselves out of the hole they themselves have dug. So it could be a rabbi, could be a personal coach, could be a therapist, could be a friend. Find a partner to talk it out with, to set goals with, and even to report back to. Sometimes having that extra um, kind of, uh, I guess it's peer pressure is not a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing. So uh, in terms of realistic goals, so there's a great book, uh, Charlie Harari, very popular speaker, wrote a book called Unlocking Greatness. And in there, he talks about how to have a successful strategy. And what he says is that uh, when we're trying to change, we have to take into account and work off the plasticity of the brain, that the brain can rewire itself. And he said, that's the power of ritual. The goal of change is not to say, I'm just going to grit my teeth and, and, and push myself through it. It's to make the new change into my new habit. And if we do that, uh, then uh, our brain will, in a sense, rewire itself towards that conditioned behavior. They say Leo Tolstoy wrote every single day. Many of the successful people, what was their success? That they had a schedule, they stuck to it, they worked at it and applied themselves. So a um, quote from Aristotle that he brings is, excellence is an art won by training and habit. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is then not an act, but a habit, right? So the inspiration of Yom Kippur is great, but the problem is inspiration is not what will carry us through. As we said, some 20% uh, of the people forgot their goals. So the inspiration is not enough. And Judaism understands, of course, the power of ritual. Uh, I don't like that word ritual because it implies a mechanical act. Uh, the mitzvot that we do throughout the day are there to give us a structure and to reinforce the messages that the Torah is 
embedding within us and to give us points of connection in our relationship to the Almighty. And so having those touch points in our, in our life and in our day is crucial and powerful. So um, the other thing to realize is that uh, actions are a place to start. While I am not my actions, uh, I am something deeper, but uh, fake it till you make it. Behavioral psychology says play the role and you'll become it. So that's also a very powerful strategy. And like in Judaism, we focus upon the concrete actions because that's what we can quantify. Whether I had good feelings about someone every day, very hard to put our hands on. But I know if I did a good deed, if I helped someone cross the street every day, carried someone's bags, called a person who I know is lonely, that is quantifiable, that is concrete, and that is the externalization of the quality that I'm trying to engender within myself. Because we said that recognizing our mistakes or recognizing our, la our lackings is really getting to the root of the problem. So yes, we do have to work on our character traits and we have to figure out how to be more patient and how to be more empathetic and how to be more persistent, how to be more sensitive with others. But the actualization of it will come through concrete actions and moments and especially if I can quantify them. So say I'm going to try and do a good mitzvah, a mitzvah a day and uh, and write it out, make a list, and keep track of it. So, measurables, quantifiable, give ourselves a reward when we achieve it. These are all some of the steps that will help us to be successful in trying to change. And, um, and as we said, Yom Kippur is the time of year. We talked about the power of doing it in, in groups. So Yom Kippur, the fact that we know that others are working on it also helps give us an extra, uh, an extra push to, to trying to achieve this. Now, I'd also like to talk about the spiritual power of Yom Kippur because there's something beyond just the psychological, the tools that we're talking about, and that is the spiritual dimension. So first of all, we're told that if we come to try and purify ourselves, God will help us. That we get a special divine help. So if there's something we think that is too difficult to overcome, never believe that we're not possible. It's not possible because it's not just us. The Almighty is in it with us. And there's also in Yom Kippur a power of renewal transformation and purification that goes beyond the usual personal growth and change. What do I mean? So the analogy is if we owe a loan, right? Let's say you have a loan, student loan, you can't pay it. So your loan gets forgiven, okay? You do all you can, you try, you can't pay, your loan gets forgiven. Now, maybe you no longer owe the money but the problem is your credit rating is shot. So we believe that Yom Kippur is, gives us kapara. In a sense, kapara means translated as atonement, but it really means I have 
um, in a sense, uh, redeemed uh, the act that I have done. Redeemed it how? By through, going through the steps of tshuva. But maybe I've redeemed the act, but I'm still the person who did it. The rabbis say you do something bad once, it's upsetting. You do it twice, you get inured. You do it three times, it's become a habit. So how do I go from being the person who might have um, uh, uh, bent the truth, so to speak, but now the problem is that I'm a person who's capable of lying. So we're told Yom Kippur also has the power of Tara, of purifying ourselves, of getting us back to the original state before we were tarnished, before we were inured by the actions. And that is also something very powerful and uh, something that uh, we should appreciate about Yom Kippur and strive for and ask for God's help for. And there's a famous verse in the Talmud, famous teaching of Rabbi Kiva, happy are you, Israel, before who do you purify yourselves and who purifies you? Your Father in Heaven. And we believe that the connection to Yom Kippur, which connects us to the Almighty, is part of that process. Um, someone asked, is that purging? In a sense, in a sense, although we don't view it so much as purging. Uh, in a, in, now I wanted to talk about some of the customs of Yom Kippur. And here we can talk about fasting. So in a sense, fasting has an aspect of purging. We're not doing it to suffer or to bring hardship upon ourselves, but we're doing it to uh, several dimensions to it. One is to divest ourselves of our ego, to let go of the me, I want, I need. And that's what might have gotten us into trouble in the first place. So being able to fast is an exercise in the ability to let go of our needs on of our, uh, our own personal drives. And beyond that, there is an aspect of purging. There is a, uh, an aspect of inui, of, I wouldn't call it suffering, but of discomfort and of difficulty and fasting. And that itself is also a cathartic experience which, um, which allows us to be purged, if you will, to move beyond the mistakes that we have made, to be purified of them. So on Yom Kippur, there are several dimensions in which we minimize our bodily pleasures and needs. We don't eat or drink for 25 hours, from sundown until nightfall the next day. Uh, we don't wash, no showers. We don't anoint, no perfume. We don't wear leather shoes which is a sign of comfort, and no marital relations. So some of the rabbis say that really what we're doing is we are elevating ourselves above the physical world. On Yom Kippur we become like angels. And that's the custom to where white is the purity that we are attaining through Yom Kippur. Now some of the customs are to have a meal before the fast, and it's a festive meal good to do it with other people, to eat. And Yom Kippur is not a dour day. Um, I mentioned it's not that, the most fun day. But we uh, see it as an upbeat, positive, 
optimistic day and a day of celebration. So, uh, so we have a celebratory meal before the holiday. Then at night we have the Kol Nidre, which is, Kol Nidre is a very strange, it's really not a prayer, it's really a declaration. And the cantor says it, but we really should be saying it ourselves, which is that we believe words have power. And that when we make declarations and make resolutions, they should count. So what we are asking the Almighty is that may the resolutions of the past year that I wasn't able to fulfill be nullified and uh, that I start with a clean slate. So that's the, uh, the Kol Nidre. The Kol Nidre appeal, uh, the real Jewish Kol Nidre appeal is appeal for more mitzvot, for personal change. That's the real Kol Nidre appeal. Um, the custom is to do it before nightfall and it precedes the Mar of the evening service at night. Uh, then, uh, at the following day, the afternoon, there are morning services at well, which sometimes will last much of the day. This year in Israel, where services are going to largely be outdoors, uh, people are streamlining the service because uh, we're going to be outdoors in the heat and going to be fasting. Uh, part of the idea, I think, of the long services on Yom Kippur, the rabbis feel like keep you in synagogue all day will keep you out of trouble and keep you focused on God. But really the goal is to be, have that focus. So whether it's in synagogue, whether it's reading things that relate to Yom Kippur, make it a day of meaning, a day of introspection, a day of thinking about our lives, where they're going, what we can correct. And it culminates in the ni'ila. Na'al is, means to lock. And it's the locking of the gates, so to speak. As Yom Kippur ebbs away, it's our last chance to get in our final appeal before the Almighty and to get in our final feelings of desire for closeness to the Almighty and for change. So there's an intensity to the Ni'ilah that is very powerful. And uh, the Department of Health and the Israeli government has been fine-tuning the regulations and the final Rosh Hashanah regulations were not announced until the night before, but we are hoping that we will be able to do outdoor services for Kol Nidre and the Eli in Tel Aviv at Kikar Hamedina. Uh, sorry, at uh, Kikar Habima. That's what we're doing, Kikar Habima. So that's the goal, is to make Yom Kippur a day which will be a day of transformation, a day of tshuva, a day of returning to ourselves and to our true essence, and a day that we can use uh, to power ourselves ahead, but in a realistic, practical way of setting up practical goals, realistic, achievable goals. And the final category of people was the people who simply forgot about their goals. So I know you have to be discreet about it, but write it down somewhere, put it in your wallet, private place, and take it out ideally every day and see how are we doing with my resolutions as I go forward. And they'll be, become more than just New Year's resolutions. They'll become the tshuva of Yom Kippur, which will flow into the rest of our year. Have a shana tova. We say a gemar chatima tova. May you have a good inscription, a final inscription uh, in the Book of Life.